electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Well, stocks finishing mixed as the 10-year Treasury kissed or re-kissed 4%. That's the scorecard on Wall Street, but the action is just getting started. Welcome to Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan with John Ford. Another rough day on Wall Street as the Nasdaq falls for a fifth day and the major averages on track to snap an eight-week winning streak. And coming up, yeah. Will deal-making pick up the pace in 2024? City's head of investment banking tells us which sectors are most ripe for M&A. Plus, we'll get the outlook for cryptocurrencies with Reddit, uh, Reddit co-founder, venture capitalist Alexis Ohanian, who just made a big investment in a Bitcoin-related company. Let's break down today's action with our first guest, though, Tony Dwyer, chief market strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Tony, it's great to have you back on the show here. Um, I do want to start with, I mean, the Dow, the Dow eked out a small gain today, but the S&P and NASDAQ finishing the day lower again. I mean, you had been on CNBC, what, late December, and you had said we were prone for a pullback. Is that what we're getting right now? Yeah, really coming into this week, I, the note I wrote, and thank, thanks for having me, Morgan, and, and happy new year to you and John and all the viewers, of course. Um, so coming into this year, we called it the first note of the year opposite day. You know, when you look back at, at um, October 27th, you came into the market with rates spiking to 5%, with the S&P historically oversold, with the VIX historically oversold. Um, or, or overbought, sorry, and the dollar was very strong. And it, it is absolutely opposite coming into this year from that scenario. So the market is right. It's very positive historically to have the kind of breath move that we've had that came with the Fed pivot, um, dovish pivot last year. But all the data that we have suggests it, got a little, it, it just got too extreme. What are your thoughts on Treasury yields as we do see the 10-year back at 4% now? So the the technical side of it, technical side of it, would suggest a bounce. Like as I as I said, Morgan, like if you looked at the weekly stochastic, I call it my trusty weekly stochastic. When we look away from the uh, the macro or the fundamental data, and any move, what's been amazing to me is how extreme the moves have become and how quickly they become extreme. So you've gone from an extreme overbought when interest rates on the ten year got up to five percent, now down at three and three quarters, it got extreme to the bottom side. So it suggests a bounce. Um, it, coming into this year, you had the market anticipating seven rate cuts. When we were talking about more, we called it higher for shorter, when you had when rate expectations um, coming into October were for only maybe three cuts uh, this year, it's seven cuts. You're kind of dis. I don't know what data you're going to come out with this month that's going to make yields go down. So I think that was the setup for a bump higher in yields here. Okay, so overall, the stage is set for a pullback, and we're getting a pullback. But what about sectors? Do you rotate into something, out of something? I mean, healthcare seems to have been performing particularly well thus far in the first days, first hours of 2024 compared to 23. 
Yeah, John, it's like the, it's the inverse of what started last year. You, you take all the prior year's losers and you ramp them in the beginning of the year. And that's kind of what healthcare, small cap, equal weighted over S&P. And I, I do think that'll be a more prolonged theme. But that's where you go first is you go to the most oversold areas that you can get the lift out of. And I think that's what the market's done. I mean, when I look at the small cap or equal weight, when I got into the business in 1987, not to date myself too old, um, <laughs> The debate was you can't use the Dow Jones Industrial Average anymore because it's just 30 stocks. So portfolio managers and institutional investors, pension plans, they transitioned to using the S&P 500 because it was a more broad representation. Well, today, those 10 top 10 stocks of the S&P 500 are a third of the market, literally 33% of the market. So when I talk about the market, I talk about the more of an equal weighted S&P or small versus large. And I think both of those are going to outperform for, I think, years to come, potentially, not just over the next, you know, because it's it's coming into this this year like that, John. So along those lines, then, for 2024, what does a balanced portfolio mean, whether you're including fixed income, whether you're talking sectors, or, or whether you're just uh, not relying on just an index and index funds to be safe? Well, the, the issue that, that has come into the market is it's structurally different because it used to be if you go from if you don't go into if you're coming out of bonds, you'll, you've got two options, stocks and cash. Well, as you guys know, that has changed dramatically. Not only is it that usually it goes into passive, but now you have the option of private whether it's private credit, private equity. So when I talk to um, investment committees of endowment funds or pension plans, they're not talking about, okay, let me go find the best fund manager out there for domestic equities. They're talking about how to get into private credit or yeah. increase or add to their exposure to private equity and, and venture. And those locked up investments, I think is what's helping create some of the volatility and the asset allocation shifts that we've seen over the last, you know, maybe five years. All right, Tony Dwyer. Good to see you. Thanks for joining us on Overtime. Great to see you guys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Now, Mobileye shares plunged today, hitting a 52-week low after issuing a revenue warning. Christina Partsonevelis, inventory issues not done yet, huh? Yeah, especially with Tier 1 customers. But they are pretty much setting a negative tone among auto semis right now with this massive guide down. The autonomous driving systems company expects, to your point, a 50% drop in revenue for the first quarter of this year because of excessive customer inventory issues. So they got to work through it, which means they won't buy as much. And keep in mind, too, that 30% of Mobileye's business is also exposed to China. That's why Mobileye had its worst day since going public just last year in October 2022. Bank of America also downgraded the stock today to underperform given this weak outlook. Intel owns roughly 88% of Mobileye shares, but its stock is off the lows that we saw earlier today when it dropped over 1%. But that's not necessarily the case for auto-exposed chip names like STM, NXPI, uh, analog devices, for example. They all fell around 3% or more. And this is really the first negative pre-announcement from a chip company in 2024 and could be isolated to Mobileye. That's what Bank of America thinks. Or could set the tone for auto-exposed names like OnSemi or NXP as they meet with investors at the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas next week. And then we have earnings, of course. The thing that jumped out to me here is that it, it took this long for Mobileye to realize how much inventory had been stockpiled throughout the year. And they said that it was because of the, a hoarding mentality that these automakers picked up they're during concerned. the pandemic. Right. Uh, but, but they're taking the hit up front, uh, most of it, in Q1, it sounds like. Maybe that's a consolation? 
Yeah, so do you think that's a bold move then about maybe setting an example for other companies that they're doing this, you know, take the hit right now. And then they said that uh, sales would be relatively flat through Q2 to Q4. So it could be a strength. Then would other companies, you know, on Semi, for example, or NXP follow suit? The only difference, though, with this particular company is that the issue is more with the autonomous driving systems as opposed to the other parts of the vehicle that may not be as hardly or as uh, dramatically hit uh, compared to uh, Mobileye. All right, Christina Partsnavolis, thank you. Thanks. Now, 2023 was all about the comeback of growth stocks, but what will the story be for this year? Let's ask senior markets commentator Michael Santoli. Mike. Yeah, John, seems like there's a, at least a tentative consensus that non-mega cap growth stocks should actually be able to perform here. On a two-year basis, Russell 1000 growth versus Russell 1000 value have actually uh, ended up being in a pretty similar uh, spot, as you can see right here. Uh, you've, you've got a little bit of outperformance here from uh, growth over this last little bit. Wait a second. This is, is this not a... Uh, this is a week to date, I think, right here. Uh, uh, trust me, on a two-year basis, you have them coming together, uh, and you've had this massive catch-up. Now, Russell 1000 growth ETF, shockingly, of those magnificent seven stocks that we know dominate the S&P, they're also like 47% of the market cap of the Russell 1000 growth. You've got 900-plus, 990-plus stocks worth, you know, just over half of it. So it's clearly a bet on that. I did want to take a look, too, at the Apple versus Microsoft, the two top weights in all of these indexes. Uh, out there and how they've sort of fractured just a little bit. This is over uh, a two-year span. You see they really were in sync for most of this period of time. Microsoft, again, proving to be the more defensive one. It's the more universally owned and loved and believed one. Apple, we know about all the downgrades. We know about the issues with struggling with top-line growth. Really not much outperformance over the S&P over this two-year period. I think it's also worth a reminder, over this long iPhone-era run in Apple shares, which has been just monstrous gains, it has taken these 18-month to two-year sideways pauses along the way. So the fact that you don't get a lot of net progress in Apple uh, doesn't necessarily mean that uh, in an enduring way the story's over. And Microsoft, not necessarily the same with those pauses. Uh, th does that account for some well, of the Well, I mean, you could lines? argue that Microsoft paused for more than a decade, uh, you know, after the year 2000 and which you get into the early 2010s. But, um, you know, a little bit less so. It is it is somewhat tended to be a little more trendy, uh, so to speak, and be able to perform in different uh, different environments. Apple, uh, I, I guess, just has these sort of accelerated moves and then it has to digest them. Yeah, you've got the before Nadella, the BN era of Microsoft, and then... Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. All right, uh, Mike, thanks. Speaking of Microsoft and Apple in particular, that leads in to the latest installment of my On the Other Hand newsletter. This week's debate is, will Apple lose its status as the most valuable stock given the rocky start to the year? I weigh both sides of the argument. You can scan that QR code. Yeah, that way. On your screen, uh, join the it's conversation. It's like a mirror, right? When, yeah, you put, when you put writing up in it's, front of a mirror, it's, it's you got to so figure I, it out. Yeah, cnbc.com slash O-T-O-H. If you don't want to take out your camera on your phone and do that, you can just yeah. you can type old school. Although, although that QR code, it's a fancy QR code. I'm liking it a lot. I like those. All right. Well, on the other hand, the end of 2023 saw a whirlwind of deal-making in the pharmaceutical industry. Up next, City's head of investment banking tells us which sectors could experience M&A mania this year. And later, Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian on his outlook for cryptocurrencies, social media, and the environment for venture capital. Overtime's back in two. You seek the key. 
But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. Saving, researching, investing. Now you can take those investments to the next level with Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. I have an investment account with Schwab and a 401k with Fidelity, and I use Yahoo Finance to consolidate them so it's incredibly easy to manage. They've been helping great investors like you for over 25 years. So whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking to level up, Yahoo Finance can simplify things, putting all your tools and data in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a 360-degree look at the financial news cycle, from breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, and customizable charts. They've got you covered. You can see all of your 401k and other investments by securely linking your brokerage accounts. Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you see your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective helps smart investors become even better. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Overtime. Global M&A volume fell 18% in 2023 to a 10-year low. But we've already seen a few deals in the start of 2024, including today's announcement from APA. It will acquire rival Calon Petroleum for about $4.5 billion. That's part of a recent spree of deals in the energy sector specifically. Joining us now is City's head of investment banking, Tyler Dixon. Tyler, it's great to have you on the show. Great to see you. Happy New Year. We did start to see more deal making uh, in, in the final months of 2023. Is your expectation that that just sort of kicked the door open for, for more of it to happen in 2024. What are you expecting? Look, I think it, uh, we certainly like the way 2023 finished with uh, equity markets at highs, with uh, credit markets at lows, meaning rates and uh, also spreads, uh, creating some positive backdrop. Uh, we liked the second half of the year M&A activity. We certainly liked the way the year finished at about $3 trillion in value. It was very much a second half story. Uh, where about nine of the 10 largest transactions were announced in the second half. So we think that has set up a, a foundation for the start of 2024 with a lot of that momentum carrying through. The conversation I've had so many times in the past year, particularly the past six months, both on camera and off, has been that the divide between bid and ask was still too wide last year and that the ask side was going to have to fall further to see more deals actually come to fruition. Has that happened? Uh, I think we're getting there. I think three uh, dynamics that we like is first, uh, some more certainty around the interest rate outlook. Second, that buyers and sellers have had time in order to have their views of valuation coalesce. And third, I also think we're helped a bit by a little bit more clarity and a little less uncertainty around the regulatory environment. And so that's created opportunity, as you've mentioned, in places like healthcare, industrials, energy, and technology. And uh, we see those opportunities continuing in 24. Do you expect, Tyler, to see more take private deals or public companies uh, perhaps hunting other smaller public companies? The CEOs and boards who we're talking to uh, are you know, interested in all opportunities. So uh, I, I think confidence is building. I think it's off a low base. So uh, you know, it's difficult to predict the future. And I think it'll be evolutionary rather than revolutionary. Uh, when we look at activities, uh, we think we'll see more of the same from last year with respect to 
corporates repositioning portfolios, selling off subsidiaries that aren't attractive or eliminating value through carve-outs. Uh, we think on the sponsor side, we will see some monetizations of their portfolios. Their limited partners want a return of capital, and we also think they have capital to invest. And so we will see some take privates and some new LBO activities. Uh, and of course, uh, given that activists are in the market, and that's been a value creation strategy, uh, we think that'll be a catalyst as well. I think about Mark Benioff of Salesforce and Pat Gelsinger of Intel because Benioff got in some trouble in 23 over the track record of, uh, of, of his M&A and that working out. And Pat Gelsinger has been spinning off more and more things from Intel trying to make th this turnaround happen. Do you think investors are, are feeling okay about letting the Benioffs of the world, as if there's more than one, get back in and start buying stuff? Uh, I think so. I think there'll be a balance of buying and selling activities. The strong will probably get stronger. Uh, the weak will get stronger by pairing off portfolios into the market that uh, that they don't think are consistent with their overall strategy. You just mentioned LBOs. Uh, we, we know 2023 was a challenging year for leveraged buyouts. Um, credit tightened last year, particularly on the bank side. It raises the question, are deals going to be able to get financed this year? And how much of that hinges on a new normal being absorbed in terms of where rates end up? Well, look, I think uh, a, a bit of stability in the outlook for rates helps a bit, and that can create a foundation. I think the cost of money is obviously higher than the environment where we had uh, interest rates low forever, but the absolute rates give us a foundation where we would expect activity to come forward. And so uh, when we look at it, I, I think deal structures will be uh, important, which is we think safe deal structures that'll work for the syndicated bank market and the big banks will have a place. We also think private credit and direct lenders will play a role in some other parts of the market. How much do politics matter here? You know, the Biden administration, particularly FTC, hasn't been too friendly toward deal making. But if it looks like things are swinging in a different direction in this election year, Will that influence the eagerness to get deals done? Uh, look, I think um, you know deals will get done in in uh, in, in either scenario. Uh, I, I think it's important that uh, as 2023 unfolded, uh, the regulatory outlook got a little bit more certain uh, rather than less certain, and I think that helps at the margin. Uh, I think what I'd also point you to is generally we see constructive equity markets when we see the outrate for interest rates uh, more likely to be cut than going higher. And in president election years, uh, where stock markets usually perform well, when we see that foundation, we certainly see the ingredients for some M&A activity to unfold. Okay, the ingredients are there. Thanks, Tyler. Tyler Dixon from City. Up next, Reddit co-founder and venture capitalist Alexis Ohanian on his crypto investment, his outlook for social media, and what he thinks of his new cyber truck. On the other side of this break, overtime's right back. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Overtime. Bitcoin popped through 45,000 at the start of 2024, now trading at just over 44,000, up more than 160% over the last year. Meantime, Bitcoin rewards app Lolly recently raising its Series B, securing more than $28 million to date. 
Investors include Alexis Ohanian's VC firm 776, uh, Ohanian and Lolly CEO Alex Edelman joining us now. Guys, welcome. Alexis, so you, you first invested in Lolly, I think it was about three years ago or so, pre-Series A. Yeah. What does a crypto investment, crypto-related investment mean that's different in 2024? Well, John, look, you know, I've been investing in crypto for over a decade now. Three years ago, was floored by what Alex and the team had built. And we love early stage investing. We invest on the, the potential. And what's been really exciting is the last few years, you know, more and more people have continued to, I mean, you showed the numbers there about Bitcoin. More and more people have continued to seek that as an asset that they believe in. And it all comes back to user experience. And what Lolly's proven is that if you can make it delightful and easy as heck to save money in all the places you already shop and earn Bitcoin, it's a win for consumers. Alex, uh, so running Lolly now versus three plus years ago, it used to be people were saying cash is trash. The interest rates that you would get on, on cash back and saving in cash, not so good. But things have shifted a bit, haven't they? So how, how do you frame or do you reframe the value proposition? So we actually give uh, cash back and Bitcoin and we really let people choose. Um, and I think now with uh, credit card, uh, uh, credit cards, uh, you know, people are spending through the roof and uh, in, in credit card debt. Uh, people are looking to save money now more than ever, uh, especially in these inflationary times. Um, and so we often encourage people to learn about Bitcoin and earn Bitcoin very easily uh, from over you know twenty five thousand locations, um, but yeah, we're having fun on the Bitcoin side for sure right now with it uh, more than doubling over the last few months. So Alex, I mean Bitcoin, we've obviously seen it rally. It's a, it was up one hundred and sixty percent last year. How how I guess enthusiastic has the uptake been for your product, and how are consumers who are accessing it thinking about it? Is it are thinking about it as a store of value or as a means to a mode of transaction, which is not really what we've seen the adoption of Bitcoin take on in a meaningful way yet. Yeah, so you know, Bitcoin, you know, 15 years after its inception, um, is still a, a predominantly used as a store of value and an incredible one at that. Um, our shoppers are, are using us, uh, our service now more than ever. We're up 30% uh, year over year. Um, you know, we have way more merchants uh, now than we did, so we have a, a lot of adoption not just on the obvious side, on the consumer side, but also on the merchant side. Uh, a lot of merchants are reaching out proactively now to join the platform because it's really easy for both consumers and merchants to get involved in, in Bitcoin um, uh, now. And then on our new uh, card-linked offer product, um, where uh, people are earning five times more rewards uh, with that product uh, than the previous product. So uh, a lot of really good things happening both uh, internally and then as you, as you all mentioned on the macro uh, with Bitcoin, uh, adoption as a whole. Okay. I want to shift gears a little bit. Alexis, I want to talk about AI, which obviously was another big th theme of 2023 and, and, and continues here in terms of the next chapter for this year. Um, how are you investing now? And also, how are you putting it to work within your own firm? Yeah, it, it's been an exciting time. And over the last year and a half, we have been heralding to our portfolio as well as internally to our team that these tools are going to help us do our work better and faster than ever before. And we're using it to help draft first first takes of press releases for our sports teams. Um, we're using it to help 
draft first takes of content that we post on social media, talking about our portfolio companies. And what's been exciting is we're still at probably the least interesting version of this technology, right? Sure, it's helping us write code a little faster. It's helping us write copy a little bit faster. The way that these things get integrated, uh, whether it's in the proprietary tools like our firm's Cerebro, or the way that portfolio companies like Lolly are using it to better deliver just more delightful user experiences to their customers is going to start to compound. And, and sure, there's going to be some big winners here. And you know those names who have already from NVIDIA to Microsoft. Uh, but there's a chance here for nearly every business to find efficiencies thanks to this tech. And it's it's an exciting time. I've been in tech for a minute. And I've, I've not been this excited uh, really ever before. Alexis, uh, governance related question for you. You've been an advocate mm -hmm. for uh, opportunity for underrepresented board members, um, entrepreneurs, et cetera. Right now there's a backlash against the, the ideas of diversity, uh, of inclusion, to the extent that some people feel they've gone too far. What do you think is the right direction to take in this environment? What message, if any, do you have? Mm. Uh, you know, we have always couched this language, whether it was thinking about how we were hiring at Reddit back early in the turnaround in 2014. Uh, I brought on Caitlin Holloway, who was our head of people there and who joined me now in this endeavor, Building 776. The way we've always framed the decisions we made were around excellence first and foremost. And where it actually really matters is the intention that you put into the practices, the culture, the things that you're doing. I think a lot of well-intentioned people put forward some ideas that metastasize into something much, much bigger. And I think in, in a lot of ways, in, in some cases, less effective than originally uh, intended. Um, look, those values, I think, are bottom line, the way to win, the way to get towards excellence. And I think when when companies, organizations are trying to sort of check a box, uh, even well-intentioned ones, it, it, it's not going to create an outcome that anyone would be happy with. Um, and so... Look, it's evolving. I think the pendulums continue to swing. Um, and my hope is, look, these are values I obviously believe in, but they they start always with greatness uh, as being the reason why that underpins all of this. And uh, the good news is I know there are a lot of folks who are continuing to build their companies in these ways, um, and they're going to continue to find success. Uh, and, you know, we as a society are going to have to keep figuring out where, you know, that pendulum is going to going to stop next. But uh, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think, you know, some of the most effective companies I've ever built, some of the most effective companies I've ever invested in are companies that from the very start were super intentional about the way that they were building their teams, knowing that having a diversity of viewpoints and experiences actually helps you lead to better outcomes. But, uh, you know, I, I guess we, we still need more time to keep putting points on the board and showing folks that this is the right way to do it. Not because it feels good, but because it's actually just the way to build a better organization. Okay. I'm going to do a little bit of a lightning round with you here, Alexis. Speaking of companies okay. you built, co-founder of Reddit. Is Reddit sure. going public this year? Uh, no comments, but if you read what I read, it seems pretty likely. <laughs> okay. We also teased it uh, ahead of the interview, and that's the fact that you are one of the early customers yeah. of uh, the Tesla Cybertruck. Do you have it? Do you like it? I, I was very lucky to be, I guess, the third. They, they, I had pre-ordered a long time ago, and I got a nice text from Elon's chief of staff who was like, hey, do you want to come pick it up early? And uh, you just got to come to Austin. I said, sure. Uh, it, it's actually a lot of fun to drive. I, uh, <laughs> I just need something large enough to be able to get like kids to school and a couple of 100-pound dogs uh, in the back. So I'm not, I'm not working on job sites with it, but I, I do love driving it, and it's, it is a lot of fun to move. 
what is um, Alex the, the state of fintech right now? Do you think um, what are the the biggest differentiating problems that can be solved right now and move a company ahead of the competition? I, I think one of the most fun things is the intersection of Web two uh, fintech and Web three um, onboarding people into into crypto. Um, it seem, seems to be uh, one of the biggest ways that these companies can make money. I mean, if you look at Square you know, as, a, as a, a block now as a, as a public company um, and their balance sheet, I mean, they became, I think, uh, you know, pretty wildly uh, successful by offering Bitcoin um, and really leaning into that. M many companies are following suit. Uh, and then as we go into this uh, bull market, um, I think more and more companies are going to be looking for those solutions that bridge uh, Web 2 FinTech with Web3. Okay. Alex Edelman of Lolly and Alexis Ohanian uh, of 776. Thanks for joining us. It's time for a CNBC News Thank update you. with Julia Borston. Julia. Iowa police said at a press conference minutes ago that a 17-year-old student at Perry High School acted alone and was responsible for today's mass shooting there. One sixth grader was killed. Five others, including an administrator and four students, were shot. All of them are expected to survive. Police also say they found an improvised explosive device while searching the school and disarmed it. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is suing the bus companies that helped to transport migrants sent from Texas. Adams accuses 17 bus companies of violating state law for not paying the migrants' cost of care in the lawsuit. The city is seeking $708 million in damages to recoup costs since Texas Governor Greg Abbott began to bus migrants out of his state in 2022. And a public transportation problem in New York City this afternoon. According to the Transit Authority, one subway car rear-ended another and caused a derailment on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Police say at least eight people suffered minor injuries and that several subway lines that run through the city are seeing major delays. Back over to you. All right, Julia Borston, thank you. Eli Lilly announcing plans to take its weight loss drugs directly to consumers. Up next, an analyst who thinks this could be a strong tailwind for that stock. And don't forget, you can catch us on the go by following the Closing Bell Overtime podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Overtime. Drug maker Eli Lilly launched a new website today called Lilly Direct. The new service is going to provide an end-to-end -end healthcare experience that allows patients to get weight loss, migraine, and diabetes prescriptions through a telehealth provider. Joining us now to discuss is Evan David Siegerman of BMO Capital Markets. Evan, what does this mean for the industry overall? Because Novo Nordisk uh, is up almost 4% today. Lilly closed slightly down. WW, which is also trying this access to weight loss drugs thing, was down 11%. Is that a reaction that's meaningful? Well, I think Lilly's been up, I don't know, 7% or so year to date. So Lilly's doing quite well. The reaction to Weight Watchers is probably because Lilly's stepping in, offering a telehealth platform to get patients access to these medications. What I think is most interesting and most important in this space, especially in obesity, is that there is a lack of obesity healthcare providers. So patients who even want to get on these drugs are having a tough time finding the right providers. So this really starts to eliminate some of that friction. And of course, it allows Lilly to ship essentially the drugs right to the patients who need it. So they're not having to hunt around for the specific dose um, that the physician's prescribing, which is a big challenge. So do investors need to prepare for the middleman to get 
cut out here? I mean, uh, are all of those stocks more at risk and the benefits going to accrue more uh, profit-wise to the, the makers of these drugs and treatments? Well, I think there's still going to be wholesalers. There's still going to be PBMs because, remember, Lilly is not giving away the drugs, right? The drugs still have to be covered by insurance. So the, you know, the care marks, the CVS care marks of the world, the express scripts, are still involved in that process, from my understanding. It's just that there's no retail pharmacy where a patient is having to go hunt for that particular dose that's being shipped right to them. Okay. So what does this mean, both in terms of the evolution of the price of these drugs and what consumers or patients, I should say, will be paying? And what does it also mean in terms of the costs for Lilly on the back end? So a few things. One, I, you know, it's about $1,000 per patient per month list cost. Um, Lilly offers $550 per month if you have insurance, but no coverage. And if you have insurance, it's $25 a month. None of that changes, right? Those pricing stays the same. In terms of the back end cost, yeah, they're probably going to have some sort of, um, you know, cost to run this pharmacy, um, but they're going to allow patients, you know, many, many more patients to get the product. So I think that's a real benefit here. So do you, <clears throat> excuse me, so do you buy the stock, uh, given the fact that it's, I, it's come off a little bit from the big, the big run we had in 2023? Lilly is still our top pick in major pharma for the year. We think the Zephon launch is going to impress. We're really focused on February 6th, which is Lily's earnings day, where they're going to set the stage for 2024 and talk about their expectations for ZepBound, not only financially, but also maybe even from the manufacturing perspective, which will get a lot of folks excited. Well, where's the danger, though? There's been so much hype around GLP-1s right now, you know, so much attention. It reminds me of, right. of, of AI in a way. It, it seems like disappointment is in store for somebody. Uh, are you worried about that? You know, I'm always, there's always risk with investing. I think what's key here is that, you know, our bullish thesis is based on the fact that there are a lot of patients with obesity who have a serious medical condition and need a GLP-1 plus drug to treat their medical condition. That's where the bullishness is. I actually really appreciate that Lily came out with an open letter today talking about that this is not for aesthetic reasons. This is for patients who need help. And I think that's what sustains this market. Yes, there could be some rotation into cheaper names. We recently upgraded Amgen um, to outperform on the basis of their obesity um, you know, products. But we still think that Lilly is well poised to succeed in this market. All right. Evan David Siegerman, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. And up next, Mike Santoli is going to look at whether a bond recovery could be in the works. And later, Apollo Global Management Chief Economist Torsten Slock on whether the Fed's pivot could la last month could give the economy a big boost. Stay with us. Welcome back to Overtime. Mike Santoli returns with a look at whether the odds are in favor of a recovery in bonds. Mike. Yeah, Morgan, at least from a long-term uh, basis, this uh, look at how long bond investors have been underwater uh, is pretty unique. It's, it's from uh, Strategus. Todd Sohn at Strategus shows on the bottom the number of consecutive months that, in aggregate, bond values have been below their all-time high. You see, we've never been anything like this. 41 months, it's like three and a half years. Now, of course, you've had bad bond bear markets in the past, but they always began with starting yields much higher so that over time you're collecting that yield uh, and it, it sort of eventually bolsters returns and gets the overall aggregate total return to a new high. So that hasn't happened in a while. And at least it suggests that with yields right now, 
well up off of zero, uh, you know, mid-single digits, depending on the maturity and the type of bond you're talking about. And, of course, the Fed at the end of a tightening cycle maybe going to ease again. It suggests that bonds can, again, start to do their job within a portfolio. Last year was a bit of a comeback from that sort of balanced approach. And, uh, you know, at least right now, uh, the, uh, the odds are at least no longer against you to the degree they were, let's say, two, three years ago. I mean, we had almost 15 years of very, very low interest rates. Is there a point at which we're going to point to bonds and fixed income and say, okay, we're back to a historical norm in terms of how this asset class is performing? Yeah, it seems like we're probably in that zone of, of being back to normal. The question is, is this just a little phase? I mean, I know there's a contingent out there that feels as if this economy as structured is disinflationary and it's going to, you know, drag the Fed back towards zero again. They don't want to do it. I don't think a lot of investors would like to see it. We certainly hope the economic uh, conditions aren't there uh, for a quick return to emergency rates. So, yeah, I do think that's kind of the way to think about it. Even if you don't have great appreciation in bonds, they can kind of uh, at least play a decent role uh, in terms of income and buffering a portfolio. All right. Mike Santoli, thanks. Up next, ahead of Jobs Friday, Apollo Chief Economist Torsten Slock on how the Fed's pivot could impact employment growth and the economy. And shares of microchip technology under pressure today, despite winning $162 million in grants from the Commerce Department to increase production of chips for the auto and defense industries. It's the second company to receive investment as part of the CHIPS Act. Shares, though, finished down 1%. Stay with us. Welcome back to Overtime. Investors' perception of a Fed pivot helped power the rally into year-end. But should they worry about an economy still digesting the lag effects from the hikes of the past almost two years now? Joining us now is Torsten Slock, Apollo Global Chief Economist. Torsten, great to have you back on the show. We're going to start right there with that question because I know you've been mulling it and putting research together around it. Yeah, no, and I think the critical thing really here is that should we put weight, exactly as you're saying, Morgan, on the fact that the Fed has been tightening credit conditions and raising the cost of capital for a very long period of 18 months up until what happened in December. That would all argue for a slower economy over the coming quarters. That is still what the consensus is expecting. That's still what, broadly speaking, we have been hearing from a number of different analysts in terms of what's coming in 2024. But I think what is very important in that discussion is now to begin to put weight on trying to quantify well, what are actually the implications of the Fed pivot? Chris Waller, the FMC member, said in November that the easing of financial conditions that came in the second quarter after Silicon Valley Bank, that was enough to create 5% GDP growth in the third quarter. In other words, a boom in the economy. So why wouldn't we now today come to the conclusion that the pivot that we saw in December is likely to also begin to create a boom potentially in the labor market, lower rates also in the housing market, and all that it's just complicating a lot the Fed's path of getting inflation back to 2%. So we've seen a Fed pivot. It's loosened financial conditions. And what you're saying now isn't soft landing, but the possibility of no landing. Yeah, I think that the pendulum has simply swung too far. Because if you put into the Fed's own model of the U.S. economy purpose and try to quantify what does it mean for the U.S. economy if you have a 100 basis point cut in the Fed funds rate? What does it mean if credit spreads on IG tightened by 60 basis points? What does it mean if you had $20 oil prices? And what does it mean if you have one standard deviation less in VIX? 
All that means that GDP growth over the next several quarters could grow as much as one and a half percentage point more than what it otherwise would have done. So I think the key risk going forward is that the housing market is already showing signs of a recovery. We saw last week a 5% increase in Case-Shiller. Remember, housing has a weight of 40% in the CPI index. If we have both housing beginning to stage a recovery, at the same time, the labor market is still tight. We saw ADP today. We saw also jobless claims. Still no signs of a strong slowdown. All that argues for potentially also wage inflation, according to the NFIB, also getting some tailwind. So housing and wage inflation taken together. The risk is, Morgan, to your point here, that we might actually get a swing back to the almost no landing scenario where we begin to see more risk that the economy is just not slowing down the way that the Fed wants it to. So it sounds like you think no cut in March, maybe not more than three cuts overall. Is that priced into equities? Well, I think, first of all, that I think the market in rates is getting way ahead of itself. Uh, so for futures, exactly as you're saying, are pricing six cuts. So I think we are more into the camp of three cuts of where the Fed is probably right that we will get a slower pace of cuts relative to what the market is saying. But to your point, I think for equities, the risk really is that the pendulum for this Fed has swung from hawkish, hawkish, hawkish last year to now suddenly swinging over in a much more dovish direction after the pivot. And I now I think that the pendulum will begin to swing back towards having to be more hawkish because we're simply not out of the woods. Several FOMC members have come out and also said this after the pivot meeting, saying, no, no, this was overinterpreted by the market. So I think the Fed is trying to anchor expectations at three cuts. But I do think with that will come more downside risk to equities as a result simply of that we are just not out of the woods when it comes to fighting inflation. So what are the risk assets that you see that have particularly gotten ahead of themselves at this point? Well, I think that the stock market, in particular tech, growth, uh, venture capital, things that have really gotten a significant tailwind as a result of the Fed pivot. You have also seen in the last few days significant IG issuance, significant high yield issuance, a lot of emerging signs of credit markets really coming back to life as a result of the pivot. And I think all that is tailored to essentially provide a boost to growth and is at risk of providing a boost that's so significant that we might again come back soon and talk about the economy. And we'll see the employment report tomorrow. The forecast from the consensus is just below 200,000. That's not a bad economy. So if we do get still a labor market that's strong, if we do still get a rebound in the housing market, which is already playing out as we speak, I do think that the Fed will have to step back to the more hawkish tone as we get through the next several months. Of course, it also raises the question, rather ironically, if, if this is what happens and we see growth staying strong or even reaccelerating, what that's going to do to... Treasury yields, particularly at the long end. Absolutely, because there's already a very significant debate about with a soft landing, you can both argue that that means lower long rates because if you have a soft landing, inflation is coming down, everything is fine, the Fed will be cutting and therefore long rates should be going down. But you could also argue that it will, if you have a soft landing, it increases the risk of an acceleration on its own. And if you have no recession and risk of acceleration, that could argue also for rates going up. And on top of that, we have the added issue for this year, namely a significant supply of treasuries. We will have a 23% increase in the supply of treasuries in coupons over the next four quarters. And that's a very substantial risk also that we may have to come back and debate, again, bid-to-cover ratios in auctions, what might also then ultimately result in more upward pressure, both on the belly and also the long end of the curve. So, Morgan, to your point, there's a lot of debate and a lot of disagreement among forecasters. In fact, there's a record high level of disagreement among forecasters in terms of the standard deviation of what people are saying will happen to long-term interest rates by the end of the year. All right. Torsten Slock uh, from Apollo.
Thank you. Thank you. Now, Microsoft has the key to AI, literally. Up next, we're going to discuss whether the new co-pilot button on Windows keyboards is a game changer or a gimmick. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Overtime. Microsoft announcing the biggest change to Windows keyboards in decades by adding a co-pilot key, giving users quick access to AI. Steve Kovac joins us. Steve, it seems like if AI is an app like a browser, then it's good to have a launch button. But if it's sure. a feature like spell check, it makes no sense. Right, but this there this is an indication for Microsoft that they see Copilot as just as fundamental as the start menu. So that you mentioned it, it's been decades since they changed the keyboard like this. That's when they added the Windows uh, button that launches the start menu. So that's how we interact with Windows PCs. But more important than the Copilot, let's, let's let's put that aside because this is not just for these new PCs. Copilot runs on older PCs as long as it's a Windows 11 machine. It's the AI PC. So Yusuf Mehdi, who's the executive in charge of Windows and consumer products at Microsoft, he, he said this is 2024. This is the year of the AI PC. Unclear what that exactly means, other than some like better chips in there. Uh, it's good. What I really am curious for Microsoft throughout 2024 is, besides this co-pilot stuff, besides the open AI relationship, what does this AI PC thing really mean? What are they going to do on the Windows side, on the platform side, to really juice up uh, this, the AI capabilities of these devices to meet that promise and the hype that they're already starting to do. Dell today just had their own uh, AI PC that they just announced. Again, it has a great chip in there. I'm sure it's faster than last year's chip, but what can those computers do that they weren't able to do before? No one's answering that yet. So what does this mean? And so, so we, what you're basically saying is that we don't know yet whether this is gonna create a new cycle for PCs. Right coming out of a pandemic where we saw all the pull forward and demand to begin with. That's the hope. And a Candlest Analyst had a note, I think it was at the end of the year, saying basically this AI PC can resurge a new boom in PC buying. Like you said, pandemic, you know, everyone took a break from buying gadgets. This is what Apple is dealing with this now too. Mac business is just really down right now. But they don't have this AI PC magic. If it so might game be marketing now, game changer. Gimmick. Right now, it's a gimmick because I literally don't know what these computers can do that they couldn't do before. They just call it an AI PC, but you you would open it up, you would have no idea, you know, anything was different than the one you're using now. Twenty years ago, when Intel tried to make the 3D browser a thing. Um, oh that, that didn't really. I, I was going to say, we, we don't know what happened there. For it's me, really it reminds annoying. me of internet PCs. We got to go, though. Yeah. We got to go, Steve. That does it for overtime. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.